a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Carrie. Quinn. I have a question for you. Well, I hope I have an answer for you. All right. So my question is, like, do you recall what is the weirdest piece of mail you've ever gotten? Ooh, um, probably an invitation to a baby shower from someone I don't talk to. Oh, well, okay. Um, have you ever gotten a butcher's knife in the mail or a Molotov cocktail or a, oh, an ice oh. pick? Well, that got weird quick. No, not ones that I've ordered, at least. I have ordered. <laughs> when you ordered an ice pick uh, online, it did come in the It mail. was the Molotov cocktail. It was weird, but oh, we're moving. That, that's a weird choice. <laughs> well, the woman that I want to talk to you about today received all those things in the mail along with some very bizarre, threatening not just letters, but poems. This was so mysterious that there were three different investigators that jumped on board and tried to solve this thing. And instead of being able to solve it, you know what happened to them? What? They started getting threatening letters. <gasps> okay, we got to jump it in. It took 30,000 hours to solve this mystery. But we're going to tell you about it. In under one? In one. <laughs> can we do it? It feels like a game show. Yes, we can. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So it all begins in Wichita, Kansas. It's June of 1977, and Ruth Finley has just come home from the hospital. Her husband, Ed, collapsed earlier that day, and they think it's a heart attack, but luckily it's just an old injury acting up. So while he's in the hospital recovering, the nurses and doctors tell Ruth to go home and to get some rest. So she listens to them. She heads home. Um, I do think it's very stressful. I don't think she's home alone a lot. And so she gets right. there. You know, she's amped up. This happened to her husband. Um, I don't think at this point she knows that it's not a heart attack. So she's just trying to unwind. She puts on the radio. And, like, it's not what you want. It's not easy listening. It's like the newspapers are talking. What is it, Quinn? It's. Do you know the BTK killer? Of course I do, but maybe, okay, if you haven't heard of the BTK killer before, this guy is a serial rapist and murderer who terrorized Wichita for years. And this BTK, his nickname, actually stands for binding, torturing, and killing, which is what he did to his victims. So as Ruth comes home, like, probably not what she wants to hear. Yeah, she'd prefer jazz, I think. Like, it's just not – she puts Classical. that on call. Like, can Pop. you imagine? She puts on the radio to relax, no. and they're like, bind, torture, kill. And she's like, change stations immediately. <laughs> Suddenly, Ruth's phone rings, and she picks up her landline. 
on the other end is this guy, and it's a voice she doesn't seem to recognize. And he asks her if he's talking to Ruth Smock. And Smock is her maiden name. Nobody uses it anymore. And then the next thing he says totally chills her to the bone. He says, I know all about that night. And she knows exactly what night he's talking about. This guy found a newspaper clipping of an article from 1946, and it details a memory that Ruth would rather forget. Yeah, but it's a big enough moment in her life that just someone saying, I know about that night, there's no question in her mind what night. This is when she was 16 years old, um, really just a kid, and she was living alone, which is kind of another story. But she got back from the grocery store. She walks into her house and hears the screen door shut behind her. Suddenly, without warning, a tall, middle-aged guy grabs her from behind, starts tearing at her clothing. So she doesn't know what to do. She's thinking fast, and she does a pretty good move, I think, which is she, like, jams her thumbs into the guy's eyes. Wow. Obviously a good move to try to disarm someone, but it also obviously really pisses him off. So then he's armed with chloroform, which she didn't know, and he puts it over her mouth. And as she's starting to pass out, the last thing she sees this guy do is go over to the stove and start heating a flat iron. When Ruth comes to, she feels she has scratches on her arms. She has scratches on her face, seemingly from defending herself. And she also feels her thighs are stinging. She finds second and first degree burns from the irons that she saw him igniting, like he branded her. The police get the report. They look for the perpetrator, but Ruth never saw who it was, and no one is ever arrested. So now, it's years later, and she's hearing this guy on the phone tell her story to her in this really creepy, menacing way. And he's saying, oh, do you still wear your brand? And he's explaining to her, basically, that he knows that she hasn't run around and told people about this incident, um, but he knows about it. So he's going to blackmail her, essentially. And if she wants that newspaper clipping, if she wants him to keep quiet, she's going to have to pay him to disappear because this guy, he knows where Ruth now lives and where she works. Ugh. So she hangs up on him. And at this point, I'm sure she's feeling all of the feelings, right? Yeah. Shame, embarrassment, fear, anger, and I'm sure some residual stuff from the actual attack in and of itself. Yeah. And what does she do with that? What's she supposed to do? I mean, hanging up was a good first move, for sure. (laughs) Beyond not having told whoever's in Ruth's life right now about this incident from her past. Her sons don't know this happened to her when she was younger. Her husband, Ed, that's in the hospital, he doesn't know. And when he gets back from the hospital, she actually doesn't tell him about this phone call. She's really hoping she doesn't need to and that, you know, this was uh, maybe a prank or something and this person will go away. I totally get that. That seems like a very normal response, which is like, if I just don't address it, I won't have to ever again, right? Yeah. And that is until later that summer when she receives a letter at her place of work. Her name is scrawled across the front, and inside the envelope is a yellowing newspaper clipping. It is the article about her assault. 
when she gets home, the calls start coming in again. And this stranger is calling her, but she's so freaked out that he can barely even say, you know, her name and she's hanging up on him. But he keeps calling for months. And it's not just her that picks up the phone. Her husband, Ed, answers the phone. Right. And when he does, it's just a dial tone. So in August of 1977, Ruth, she's out in Wichita, downtown. She's going shopping, and she's on her way to meet up with Ed at a store. And as she's walking to meet him, this skinny middle-aged guy with dark hair just sort of pops out of the crowd of people and starts to really engage with her. You know, engaged is a is an interesting word. Uh, I, I'm not going to call this engagement because that seems like too nice compared to what this guy does. Harassment, maybe? <laughs> he would say okay. things like, you've done such a good job working this week. You can take the weekend off. And even more bizarre, he knows that she works for a telephone company and then he pitches the idea of taking her to Vegas. Like, just very weird ways to come on to a woman if that's what he's doing. Yeah, she's totally creeped out by this guy. She's, like, trying to ignore him like you would if somebody did this to you. But this guy doesn't stop. He doesn't relent. And he then says to her, the camera reflects the true quality of one's soul. So Ruth is like, um, I am waiting for my husband. And she doesn't know if this is, like, the guy that's been calling the house or that sent the clipping. But, of course, that's what you would probably suspect. And just before Ed comes out of the store, this guy turns to her before leaving and says, I like your face. I'll see you again. You can count on that. Some people's fantasies are other people's nightmares. And then he just walks away and then Ed walks out. Poor Ruth. Poor Ruth. She's already like, like a home is not safe. Public is not safe. Like, you know, at this point, she's like, thank God it was in a crowded space, right? It's like, because yeah. she doesn't know if it was if they were by themselves, like, what he could have done. She can't keep this from Ed. So she's like, this guy yeah. just did this thing. He was saying weird to me. And Ed's like, you know what? Sounds like a creep that was just coming on to you. Don't worry about it. I'm here now. So, you know, they both sort of let it go. And back at home, the calls are getting more and more aggressive, According to the Wichita Eagle Beacon, who later reported on this whole situation, the man on this line calls Ruth and he calls her names. He starts to say horrible things to her and she keeps hanging up on him trying to stop it, but he won't stop calling. And it's not long before there's another interaction with this guy a couple months later. And Ruth is walking past an alleyway just outside a department store and this hand just reaches out and grabs her wrist and she turns And it's him. So she jerks away from him. And at this point, like, her adrenaline has to be, like, peak, right? Through the roof. Absolutely. And so she bolts to a nearby department store where there are plenty of people. She's just hoping to be around other people at this point. Yeah, it's a really good move. But he's, like, yelling after her, Ruth, get back here, you stupid and talk to me. She keeps running in the opposite direction. In fact, she runs all the way to the fifth floor of the department store before she even stops to look behind her. And at this point, she's like, I I need help. I need yeah. to talk to my husband. Like, I need backup. Well, so she calls Ed when she's feeling safe enough. And she's like, this was crazy. He actually grabbed me, kind of went after me. And, you know, this is kind of final straw. But she has to kind of recount everything at this point. She has to tell him about 
the phone calls, the letters, this right. newspaper article the guy sent, and Ed is totally horrified. He, believe me, at this point, he's oh not my like, God. Nah, I think it's a guy just hitting on you and wants to go on a date. <laughs> no, he's like, let's go to the police. So that's what they do. The police at this point are way occupied with the BTK killer. And so when this woman comes in is like, I'm getting phone calls. This guy is sort of like hitting on me, harassing me in public, but I've been okay every time. I think at this point, the police in December of 1977, the BTK's eighth victim has been discovered. So the Wichita police is like up to their eyeballs in this case. And so when they look at Ruth's case, they're like, we're happy to take this information, but it's just not at the top of our priorities. But in addition to Ruth having gotten those phone calls, in addition to, like, this guy bumping into her, well, that's a very generous way to highlight a stalker. But in addition to these in-person events, there's also been these letters that she's been getting. And the letters, they start off, they're really kind of just, like, basic, almost like a teenage vibe. They're like, F you, you bitch. Um, But then suddenly they kind of take a turn and it's whoever's writing them. I don't know where they found inspiration, but they start to be downright poetic. Um, could I could I oh give a God. read to one of them for you? You want some bad poetry? I, I love bad poetry. I hate treating women poorly. So let's see where I land in this. Okay. Reading. Okay. Okay. Wherever you go on water or land, you still got to pay or I tell about your brand. I am smart and know things to do. You talk to people I despise, like police lieutenants and telespies. What do you think? My mouth is a gate. <laughs> and is. I am, it is so bad. And I think we, you can't really get the full effect, but there's also a lot of spelling errors. Here's a second poem for your enjoyment. The whore bore her guilt in her bed of slime from selling her ass and not charging a dime. Slept with strangers in evil bed. Enraged demon hunters saw blood was red. All bitches should keep their names and faces secret. So these letters are coming in. And so with sort of like some new physical evidence to this, they're able to go in and they're able to speak with Lieutenant Bernie Jarwatsky, who's from the Major Crimes Unit. And at first he's hearing the story. He's kind of like, "Mm mm-hmm. We've heard this before. It's basic stalking. It's not something that really the department invests a lot of their resources into. But then he's looking through these letters and more specifically the poetry and something clicks. Yeah, because he's basically like, wait, hold up. BTK writes a lot of really weird letters too. Um, And obviously this could be a copycat. This could be just a coincidence. But it is reason enough for him to finally give Ruth and Ed his card and be like, okay, all right, you know what? Uh, Definitely you can call me. Call me if you need me. And this is going on throughout the next year. They're receiving more phone calls, more letters. And most of the time, the caller will just say Ruth's name and hang up. One time the phone rings, Ed picks up, and he just waits until he hears hello But it was just a payphone that had been left hanging off the hook and a passerby picks it up. It's like it's to me what's so crazy about this is it's not like it's escalating. It's like it's going like really crazy poem, nothing, phone call, Ruth, phone call, nothing like the actual like that's so confusing to me. Like you can't even like. You don't know if it's going to be the worst thing in the world or like, oh, a weird phone call. Well, imagine how unsettled that would make you feel. And, you know, the poems, they do keep rolling in. They're written in this kind of chicken scratch nobody can read. 
uh, you know, you can read them. Ruth actually sits down with them at like a typewriter and tries to like oh, God, do translations. Work. Well, because she's Jesus. like, well, I'll figure out what it says. I'll bring both it, the original, and then my like nicer typed edition that fixed all the crazy spelling errors and stuff. And she brings both into the police. According to the Wichita Eagle Beacon, on November 21st, 1978, Ruth recalls another incident where she's out, she's running errands, and it's a cold, misty afternoon, which frankly is just spooky enough as it is, stay home. Um, And at this point, the street is empty except for an elderly woman who's walking far ahead of her. So in her own personal space, she's pretty much alone. Yeah, and she was just in a greeting card shop. Um, I would probably look at greeting cards, though, a bit differently if this was all happening to me. Um, She does walk out. She sees this blue-green car sort of swerve up onto the curve near her, and it screeches to a halt. And this guy jumps out and kicks her in the shins, and it's him. And she's, like, doubling over in pain after he kicks her. And he takes this opportunity to just shove her in the backseat of this car and get in with her. And so she's in the backseat of the car. She's cornered. She's looking for her places to escape. Probably what anyone would do in this situation is, like, what's my next move? And she notices that the door to the car has no handle. So she can't even figure out how to get out. Yeah. And on the floor, she also sees there's a gas can, concrete pieces, chains, and rags. And then there's this guy driving in the front seat, and he keeps being referred to as Buddy. And this guy, he's not even driving safely. He's drinking from a bottle in a brown paper bag. Drunk driving. Right. So Buddy's at the wheel, and in the back seat, she's with this guy that, you know, she's has been sort of stalking her, apparently. And he's going through her purse, and he's like, oh, great, because he finds some cash. He finds a key to a safety deposit box. But then he finds Lieutenant Drawatsky's business card and his mood totally shifts in that moment. Because I think you'll remember from one of his earlier works, he's no fan of lieutenants and uh, spies. Well, yeah, he's no fan of getting caught. And so he sees this card and he realized that she's gone to the police and he flips into an absolute rage. He grabs the piece of concrete from the floor and he hits Ruth across the face with it. And at this point, she's like pretty stunned, but in a miracle of miracles, she's still conscious. She doesn't move, though, so that like the men won't approach her or hurt her again. She's pretty loopy, but she's sure she hears the two men talking about getting rid of her. Yeah, this whole part is so weird. And, you know, I know her recounting it. Her bell just got rung. So it's sort of like, you know, I feel like it's like a cartoon and she's kind of coming in and out and sort of becomes evident these guys have not exactly gone into this with like a very specific plan because they're just driving around for hours, for four hours, and they're just babbling to each other. And, you know, Ruth has has got this blow on the head, so she's trying to understand what's going on. But, you know, they are taking their time, and in four hours, it's enough time for Ruth to sort of come to and start trying to come up with her own plan, which would definitely put her a few steps ahead of these planless people. Um, She needs to figure out what is she going to do next. So she asks them, for a bathroom stop. 
So they pull over, they put it in park, they make her strip off her top and her shoes because in their mind, they're going, hmm, yep, this will make her stay. No question. So they take off her top and they take away her shoes and they forget to take away her purse. These dumb men. Right. Ruth is like half naked, holding her purse and getting out of this car to go, you know, use the loo. And the guy that Ruth believes to be her stalker is like, I'm coming too. I got a whiz too. So he takes her to a lake that they've parked close to. And while he goes to start to pee, Ruth is like quickly looks in her purse because she knows she has mace in there. And he didn't see it or know what it was when he was grabbing all the other stuff he took. So she finds it. And as he's unzipping, she runs over and maces him in the face and bolts, shoes or no shoes, sweater or no sweater, she's out of there. So once she books it, she gets far away and she starts to hide in the bushes and the leaves. And so she's like, God, I like can't imagine the fear of like not even wanting to breathe because you don't want to make a rustle in the leaves, right? So she's hiding and she could hear her kidnappers yell to her that they will give her back her clothes if she just comes out. Not a trade anyone's going to make, folks. (laughs) I just, again, pretty unbelievable. You just hit me across the head with a concrete piece. Not the most trustworthy guys, right? Um, I don't trust these losers either, Ruth. So she's sitting quietly. She's just trying to wait them out until their voices disappear in the distance. And once she's sure that they are gone, she books it to a nearby liquor store and calls the police. So they take her in to the station. Ed comes to meet her, and Ed, when he walks in, he sees Ruth sitting in one of those police chairs, and she's just still gripping, like, white-knuckling the mace. And he, like, goes up to her, and he's like, hey, you don't have to be scared here. No one's going to hurt you here. But she's got this feeling like, I don't know. I was leaving a greeting card store a minute ago. Like, I'm not safe anywhere. And if Lieutenant Drawatsky was not already taking this case seriously— He is now. So for the next five weeks, Lieutenant Jarwatsky starts investigating Ruth's case. And he's feeling more and more like this just has to be related to the BTK killer. There are just too many parallels in the letters. One in particular to him stands out. Several of the poems Ruth had recently gotten the mail referenced a fox that the poet had once killed. And what's interesting is that One of BTK's latest victims was a woman named Nancy Jo Fox. So he's thinking, this is an admission, that's a connection. He doesn't tell Ed and Ruth this because he doesn't want them to like... Can you imagine? They're scared out of their pants already. They don't need to hear, you know who might be doing this? A serial killer. (laughs) I have good news. Hey, I have great news. The guy named Bind, Torture, and Kill. The guy whose little nickname is everything you don't want to happen to you. Well, here's the good news. Because he doesn't tell them, Ed and Ruth come up with their own little nickname for their stalker, and they call him The Poet. And at this point, too, the police have decided to keep a really close watch on Ruth. They're worried that the stalker will come back, that the poet will escalate. So she has police detail at work, but she still doesn't feel safe, because why would she? 
Yeah, of course not. Of course not. So, you know, I, I think that Lieutenant Drowatsky sees that and he's sort of like, what else can I do? So he's taking this pretty seriously and he decides to deputize Ed and he's like training him. This is how you shoot if you're a policeman. You shoot them in the stomach so that they double over if they're going to shoot you back and they would in effect like only hit your feet or the ground weird stuff like that. And this whole time, speaking of shooting people in the stomach, Ruth is having like these horrible stomach cramps. She's so stressed out, obviously. And a thing I want you to know about her is that she was raised by a mother who was like, do not show your pain. Do not show your stress. She used to cry a lot when she was little and she was called a crybaby. And like, she has it in her head. You do not show that. So she's trying to behave like she's feeling okay and that this is in control. She doesn't want people to uh, feel sorry for her. She doesn't want to draw attention to this. She doesn't want gossip um, because she and Ed have also just always been kind of private people that wanted right. a simple life, a quiet life. This is out of character for their existence. Right. I think Ed has this like this like need to protect his wife. Of course. Right? And so he ends up spending many nights in their backyard with a shotgun in hand, just hoping that the guy who's stalking his wife comes into his backyard so he can shoot the guy. But the stalker never comes. Yeah, the poet like never arrives. Every morning, disappointment and probably exhaustion. But Ruth is not the only one who now needs protection because soon after Lieutenant Drowatsky gets involved, he starts to get letters from the poet. And the Wichita Eagle Beacon reports that the poet actually seems insulted that the police are getting involved in what is clearly his business. Over the next few years, the letters just keep coming and they threaten the lieutenant's life and the life of his family. Well, it feels like that would probably do the opposite thing, in my opinion, right? It's like if you start to attack a lieutenant's family and, like, reveal information, chances are you're going to want to find this guy more. Right. Um, And it's interesting, I think, because when Lieutenant Jawatsky and his family are receiving these letters, it sort of creates this kinship between Ruth and Ed. And they end up becoming friends. Yeah, they do. And the lieutenant is actually, he and his wife are kind of like going on double dates with Ruth and Ed. It's definitely like a bond has been forged there. Um, And then nearly a year since Ruth was abducted, the letters suddenly stop. And it's like, what's going on? Where are you, poet? Is this stopping for real? But it feels safe enough that Ruth and Ed are like, should we go on that vacation we usually go on every year to Colorado? Maybe we should. Maybe our lives are just going back to normal now. But there is so, so much more chaos to come. On August 13th, 1979, the two of them are about to go on their annual vacation to Colorado, and Ruth is going, you know what, I deserve a nice new pair of jeans. I'm going to go to the mall to shop for some. And Ed, you know, at this point, he's feeling a little apprehensive about Ruth going out on her own without protection just by herself. But Ruth, at this point, is feeling good and insists that she'll be fine. And at some point, they're going to have to return to normal. So it's now or never. Can I make like a a post this having happened suggestion and say, I'd have loved, Ruth, for you to go daylight hours. But here we are and it's 830 at night and you are walking to your car by yourself, Ruth. And there is a voice behind her that says, hey, Ruth, I didn't know you'd make this so easy. And Ruth panics. 
She goes into panic mode right away and she's doing that thing where you're trying to stick your key in the car door, but oh shoot, it's the wrong one and you're going to grab the other key and suddenly he grabs her from behind, tries to push her into the back seat, but the door's locked. So now she is struggling, pinned between her stalker and her car, just trying to get the damn door unlocked so she can flee, and he slams her head against the car. Where is that freaking mace? Yeah, she's looking for that mace, but she wants it now. And he slams her head into the driver's side of the car, and he says that he is going to take her to a bridge near an airfield, which just doesn't sound promising. He throws into the back seat a bag of rope, tape, some cheap wine and a red bandana. So he's like, got a rucksack packed, ready to go. Ruth is able to get the car door unlocked. And at this point, she starts to feel something hot running down her back. And she questions, did this guy throw something on me? She manages to get into the car. She pushes the poet back. She puts the key into the ignition. At this point, the poet is just trying to hold on to her. So he reaches through the window with a gloved hand. But she rolls up the window and she forces him to pull back. And his glove catches in the window adrenaline has to be like pulsing through her, right? Completely. I mean, this this is so intense and she's able to just drive off, leaving the poet in the dust. Yeah, and while she's leaving, I think at this point, like her breathing is probably getting a little bit back to normal. The adrenaline is kind of lowering in her body and she starts to sort of think back at this feeling that she has in her back. It just, something doesn't feel right. And she reaches her hand to feel what it is. And she finds an eight inch boning knife jutting out of her side. Ruth has been stabbed three times and she's bleeding all over her seat. Oh God. Oh, it like makes me sick. And she could to be behind the wheel and find out that's happening. You just have to keep going. So she has to drive till she sees somewhere to stop. And she pulls oh, over God. at a gas station. She has a knife in her. She calls the major crimes unit and tells them what happened. And they call Ed. When the doctors at St. John's Hospital examine her, she has a cut on her back, a gash on her arm, and a stab wound so deep that it looks like it bruised her kidney. The doctors say that if this was any deeper, that she probably would have died. Ruth spends the next nine days in the hospital, and she's under 24-hour surveillance. And so in this time, she's still got to work on her own case with the police, and they want her to keep describing her assailant so that they can try to get a good sketch of this guy. And when they come up with this sketch and put it in the paper, um, what he looks like is he's like skinny, middle-aged, glasses, grain sideburns. But really, generally speaking, it's just a very average-looking person. So the effect of this is that they just get inundated with calls and people are like, I know the poet. He was my waiter last night. I know the poet. He's my neighbor. I know the poet. He's that weird guy at the bus stop. The police follow every single lead. They show Ruth photo lineups, but when she looks at them, none of them are the guy. None of them are the guy who attacked her. Mm. They call in linguists and psychologists to examine these letters, these poems that she's receiving, and they're hoping they can connect it to the BTK killer. 
one of the people they reach out to um, worked actually on the Son of Sam case. And according to his analysis, he believes that the poet and BTK are actually different people. Psychologists, though, do seem to, like, agree a little bit on the profile of this guy. They're like, okay, he's pretty smart, he's wily, he's pathological, he's paranoid, and that he obviously feels some sort of um, persecution in his life. He also likely suffers from hallucinations. But knowing all this isn't really helping them. I mean, they're not getting any closer to finding the poet's identity. So it's we're back at square one. The poet is still a ghost. In an attempt to find out what this guy wants from them, Ruth's husband, Ed Finley, goes out on a limb. He buys an ad in the person-to-person section of the Wichita Eagle Beacon. And he writes in this ad, Poet, tell me what I owe you. RSF, which, you know, it's Ruth's initials. And this is in the hope of starting some sort of dialogue with a maniac. Yeah, because they have no way to reach out to him. At this point, they're just on the receiving end. So he's like, how do I reach this guy? And the poet responds to this ad with an ad of his own. And it says, to RSF, the price of my service to stay alive can now be settled at five. And to be clear, there's no uh, personal information given. It's not very useful. There's just a bunch of cryptic messages. Now, instead of in the mail, they're in the paper. It's just a different game. And I'm sitting there going, doesn't the paper have a paper trail? Like, don't, can't they figure out who bought this ad? But at this point, too, the poet, the circle of, like, his victims is getting larger and larger and larger because not only is he sending letters to Ruth and Drewatsky, he's also sending letters to now the reporters at the Wichita Eagle Beacon. Right. And speaking of Drewatsky, he's just getting promoted to the vice and organized crime department. And that, in effect, removes him from his now friend, Ruth Finley's case. And to be honest, like, I don't think the other officers in the department were, like, very comfortable with him being so pally with her. Um, so it, maybe it's about time someone else takes over. I don't know. I, Ruth, though, I think probably really wanted him to stay on it because she felt like he was treating it, you know, Uh, With respect, he'd been there since the beginning, and them being friends probably made her feel safe. Yeah. And one of the guys who was concerned is Captain Mike Hill. He was really skeptical of Ruth's case, and when he takes the case over, he really does his best to keep Ruth at arm's length. He even considers her and Ed to be suspects until he can prove otherwise. And so he then starts like looking at their case and he sees the stab wounds and the doctors have confirmed with him that these could not in fact be self-inflicted. Yeah. And while while uh, Captain Mike Hill is looking through the case and getting to know it, he also gets a letter because I guess the poet noticed this change of guard and wants to send Captain Hill, you know, a welcome letter. Welcome Aww. to the case, Captain. Yeah, I, I think it, it must be-, be so nice. Oh, totally. It begins, there once was a captain who had an hole for a heart, which, you know, uh, you, you got to give it to him. Not a great poet, but that is undeniably funny. <laughs> <laughs> you love humor is what I, I know about Quinn. I have a five-year-old. Quinn, it's in my exact humor. Anything and... with buttholes and poop, you're going to get a laugh out of me. There. I said it. I'm out. 
And then another letter to Hill comes, and that reads, You'll not go directly to your tomb. Your mind must give thought. There will be gloom. Your face no more will anyone meet at home, day or night or in the street. Your mind is beaten dark forevermore, hid, all because what you did. This game is fun to plan and plot, but can you stop me? No, you cannot. It's a it's a pretty big flex. I would say that the letter suggests that the poet is not dissuaded at all by this new detective taking the case. And the actions that follow suggest the same because they reach a tipping point. Over the next two years, this harassment continues. Ruth starts to find poems on her doorstep now, like not even through the mail. It's just pop it up on her doorstep. Ooh, so creepy. And this one, you ready? Here yeah. it is. A f***ed up childhood causes anger and hate. Players of games are forced to wait. I don't want to be waiting for no, this. No, no. Uh, and it's creepy, right? That they're on the doorstep. Ugh. It's like, what's this poet doing? Like, is he having them delivered by a, a by Buddy? Is Buddy delivering them? Or is he delivering them? Um, either way, the police would like to know. So they're going to mount secret cameras in the yard, um, in birdhouses, in statues. And they have extra cops that they bring on to go through the mail, to follow Ruth, to uh, analyze the handwriting samples. It's like all men on deck for this. And then it's Christmas, 1979, and the poet decides to deliver a little special holiday treat for the family. It reads, "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Ruth wasn't stirring. You're as quiet as a mouse. Your stocking was tight around your neck with care. I hoped the lieutenant would not soon be there. Well, the poems on the doorstep were creepy, but now that he's making house calls, it's just going to get worse because the next thing he does is, like, cut their phone line and start leaving crazy not just at their house but at her work. He leaves um, a knife wrapped in a red bandana in the lobby of her office building. And on Valentine's Day... You know, it wouldn't be a holiday if you didn't get a greeting card from the poet. He sends Ruth a red bandana, a piece of one, and a poem that says, Here's to you, a tender valentine, red with blood and tied with twine. Nothing too much for a valentine, gone from here by whim of mind. Over the next six months, the poet sends 50 letters, and many of them are poems meant for Ruth. One of them read, shut your eyes and think of the 12-inch blade. Will you remember the hole it made? Dream of me and obey my commands. Think of me with a knife in my hands. But in addition to the letters being sent to Ruth, the poet's also just sending lots of uh, letters and there's phone calls to all kinds of folks around town, and they have nothing to do with poetry. He's calling a florist and saying, You've got to fill this order. You've got to send this woman, Ruth, one black flower. And he calls her bank and says, you got to transfer all these funds. The health department gets word from the poet that Ruth is spreading venereal diseases. The poet tells the gas company to shut off her service. And you know what? He does the same thing with the power company. The poet hires a construction company to tear apart the Finley's driveway. He even tells the DMV that they should strip her of her license for reckless driving. 
And this he's one, like hitting her at every yeah, every angle, level. every angle. But even this one really craved me. He calls a mortuary, telling them to contact her because she's going to need their services soon. I mean, oh, this God. guy is busy, and he's going by totally undetected doing all of this, and a whole other year goes by. Yeah. I mean, she got that letter Christmas of 1979. It is now Christmas of 1980, and Ed and Ruth are sitting at home, hopefully enjoying some eggnog, maybe like a moment of like respite from this torture, and suddenly they smell smoke, and their wreath was set on fire, and the heat is so intense that it shatters a window. Oh. February, here we are again. We're back to Valentine's season, only it is 1981 now, and they find a rock wrapped in a red bandana on in their backyard. And it's like this guy, he really loved leaving them surprise packages. We didn't list it before, but I would say things included ice picks, duty, pee-pee, no joke. Well, speaking of jokes, on April Fools, the poet leaves a piece of concrete and a Molotov cocktail without the bottle, just a red bandana soaked in flammable liquid. By the fall of 1981, the Wichita police are starting to feel pretty embarrassed, you know? It's like Ruth and Ed have been under near constant harassment, and there has been nothing up until this point that they have been able to do to stop it. And at this point, the chief of police is hearing about it, right? The chief of police, Richard Lemunyan, and he is under immense pressure to come up with some answers and to solve this case. Yeah, because he's he's the kind of guy, Lemunyan, that I think he like hires guys that he has a lot of faith in and then he backs off. You know, he, he right. has other stuff to do and they need to do their jobs. So he was, you know, really... Uh, not on Drewatsky's or Captain Hill's case. He was just like, figure it out. I'm not going to interfere. But then something totally changes, which is that the poet takes aim at Lemunyan's wife. And he changes his tune pretty fast after that. In the letter, the poet writes that after he's done with Ruth Finley, he's coming after Sharon Lemunyan. He then details the make and model of Sharon's car as well as highlight the path that she drives on her way home from work. Like, I can't imagine something that would be more provocative than to target the chief of police at this totally, point. Totally, totally. And before this, look, there have been tens of thousands of police hours spent, hundreds of thousands of police dollars spent. Uh, but I really, really think that we all know it's this threat against Lemunyan's wife that's going to force his hand, and he's got to be like, okay, I'm stepping in. So it's September 1981. Chief Lemonian takes all of the case files, all of the information, everything about this case. He takes it home with him for the weekend. And at this point, like I just imagine he's at his living room table, right? Mm-hmm. And all of the files are spread out. And he is just going through each individual point with a fine tooth comb. And in this interesting way because he has some space away from the case and he's never met Ruth or he's never met Ed he kind of you know he just has the information the facts laid out before him and it's like he gets to look at it from like a fresh unbiased view and believe it or not uh, when this weekend is over and he's examined all of this he calls a meeting of the 16 officers that work for him to tell them I know the answer 
to the years-long riddle. I know who the poet is. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Chief Lemunyan sits at the head of the table in the windowless basement room under the police department. We are on lockdown, folks. It's essentially a bunker that's usually used during natural disasters. And he is, his priority is to keep this meeting totally 100% confidential. And he makes sure that only those inside this room will be able to hear the poet's identity. And our friends Captain Hill and Lieutenant Drewaski are among the men there with the other officers. They're waiting to hear this answer that they themselves have been seeking for the better part of four years. And they're like, ooh, is it going to be the BTK killer? That would be crazy. Is it like some kind of spurned lover we didn't hear about? We know Ruth's awfully private. Is he a friend? Is he a family member of Ruth or Ed? None of the above. According to Chief Lemunyan, the poet is none other than Ruth Finley herself. I feel like the air just Uh, got sucked out of that room. 100%. The officers are like trying to look impassive, but inside they're like, no, no. No, there's no way. Yeah, Yeah. and I think they're like, "Mm, okay, easy answer. You just haven't, like you had the weekend, man. It's not Ruth. The doctors, the experts, they all said it couldn't be Ruth. There's a bunch of people that have already ruled her out. But Lemunyan says he doesn't believe those experts and doctors. While he doesn't fault his investigators for growing close to the Finleys, it was his distance from this case that allows him to see it was her so clearly. And of course, he's not just going to drop this bomb and be like, end of meeting. You know, he sits (laughs) there. He's going to outline why he came to this conclusion and, and... 
Well, let's go over some of the things that he cites. He says that there weren't any witnesses to these encounters with the poet, even though a bunch of them were in super public places. Nobody saw any of this happen. Not to mention, let's talk about their house. They live in a super quiet neighborhood on a dead-end street. You would think that this guy making so many trips to the house would have at least once been noticed by somebody, but no one ever saw him, and they were never able to find any footprints or anything. Speaking of footprints, at the Mm -hmm. park where Ruth claims to have escaped her kidnappers, police, when they investigated that area, they only found one set of footprints, and they belonged to Ruth. And when Ruth was stabbed, who did she call first? Not 911. She called the investigators first. Why would she do that? And how could she have done that physically with a knife in her side? Also, uh, remember when Captain Hill replaced Lieutenant Drowatsky? The mm-hmm. poet somehow knew that right away, immediately, sending that h- hysterical letter to Captain Hill. But the thing is, the only people that were aware of the changing of guard were Ed and Ruth and the police. And he also points out that, remember when they were putting cameras in front of the house to try to see if they could find yeah. him dropping off stuff in the front? Yeah. Well, how was he able to evade the cameras if he didn't know they were there or where they were placed? Right. Like somehow he's doing this laser maze blind. Um, But lastly, the poet's letters did seem to start and stop depending on when Ruth and Ed were on vacation. And all of those things together point to the fact that it could only have been either Ruth or Ed. And Lemunyan is pretty darn confident that it's not Ed. But even after going through this this laundry list of uh, what's a lot of evidence – Some of the officers are still skeptical because they're like, yeah, this is true. But, man, we've been working with this family for four years. And, like, we know this woman. This She's not attention-seeking. And this just doesn't seem like her. She's kind of a buttoned-up gal. It just doesn't feel like it's in her character. Plus, what the hell did she have to gain? If anything, all these things that happened to her were awful. She nearly stabbed herself to death. This just isn't adding up. And Lemunyan agrees that what they really need at this moment is solid evidence. But in order to put this theory to the test, what the police need to do is they need to start following Ruth and Ed very closely, and not to protect them, but to find the truth. And what's most important is that Ruth and Ed can have no clue that this is happening. Starting Monday, September 14th, 1981, the police that have been on the Poet case are going to shift focus. So to the public, they just need to look like they're doing the same same. They're investigating leads. But secretly what they're doing is they are surveilling Ruth and Ed 24 hours a day. At least one cop car and one helicopter will have eyes on them at all times. And it takes only three days for them to have their first break. On September 17th at 8.30 in the morning, Ed and Ruth are driving in the parking lot at the Eastgate Mall, and they pull up to a mailbox. From the passenger side, Ruth reaches out, and she puts some mail through the outgoing slot. And so the cops in the helicopter see this from above, and right away they report it to investigators, and they continue to follow the Finley's car. Now, the investigators, like, get word out and send a postal inspector with the police to retrieve the letters at 1.30 that afternoon, and they bring them all to Lieutenant Duratsky. Two of them are personal letters from the Finleys, two are bills, but the last two 
are letters from the poet. One is for Ruth and one is for KKTV. It reads, Hickory Dickory Dock, the name on this face is Smock. Heat the iron for the brand, cooperate for games planned, Hickory Dickory Dock. Now, Lieutenant Jaratsky, the first lieutenant on this case, is super surprised by this, but also he still has doubt. He's not certain because keep in mind, from the moment that they called this in to when they discovered this, that mailbox was left unattended, right? So it's possible that maybe the actual culprit, the poet, did drop the letters off. There's like no way of knowing for certain that what left her hands is what was in that box, right? Yeah, it's... eh. But it's, it's not still looking not looking good, good for her. <laughs> yeah, I would say yes. But I think like, but what they're in search for is like solid evidence. And at yeah. that point, that's still not enough, unfortunately. Well, they get that evidence pretty fast because it's a week later, September 26, and Ruth returns to the mailbox to drop off more letters and they're prepared this time. So they have this long lens camera and they take pictures of the drop off and you can even make out the letters as she puts them in. And again they find a poet letter. This one is set to be delivered to Ruth, and they are like, bingo. So with all this new evidence they have now, they are certain Ruth Finley is the poet. And now they have to ask themselves two questions. Was Ed at all involved? Did he know anything? And whether or not he did, they want to know why. On October 1st, 1981, Mike Hill calls Ed, and he asks him to come down to the station to take a look at a new letter that was sent from the poet. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what they told him. When he gets there, they're like, uh, let's just chat. And it's like two hours of questioning him um, about his childhood, the history of this whole thing, like all the events of these last four years, because they're trying to get a read on him. And... Based on these lines of questionings, they're pretty darn certain that Ed is completely in the dark. And that's when they inform him, hey, Ed, listen, we know the identity of the poet. And Ed immediately is thrilled. He realizes that this nightmare that he's been living can now come to an end. And he says, I hope the hell you do. Let's go get him. Oh, I would be sweating so much if I were these guys having to say this to this man. And he like, seems so excited. He's and, like, we got him. Yeah. And so they are going through the evidence piece by piece. And then they end up showing him the pictures of the letters Ruth mailed. And they explain about all the stuff that they found in Ruth's office. And they're like, we don't have any doubt about this. He's shocked, which is to say the very least. He has no words Of all the possibilities, he never, not once, suspected that his wife was the one responsible for this years of torment, right? He he can't even understand or comprehend that this had been self-inflicted. But here's the thing. Like, they don't actually need him to accept it. They just, they needed to rule Ed out. And at this point, the only thing left to do is to bring Ruth in. Right. So while they have taken Ed in, they then are waiting for Ruth to get off work. And when she does, they bring her in. They escort her straight from her office to the police station, too, to make sure that she's not talking to anyone on the way. And she also thinks she's coming to look at a photo lineup, um, some mugshots, maybe, like she's done so many times before. 
So Ruth gets to the station and Captain Hill is waiting for her. And he sits her down and he actually reads her her rights, which I I would love to have been a fly on the wall and see how he read the rights to her in a way that didn't spook her. Um, But at this point, it doesn't spook Ruth, right? It's like she really trusts these officers with her case. And then he starts to ask Ruth about her childhood, just like he did with Ed. And then he asks her to recall the attacks by the poet, which she does yet again. And Ruth is totally cooperative. She recounts every detail exactly like she has a hundred times before. And yeah, who knows how much time has gone by, but this is when it shifts. And he just asks her point blank, what if I called you a liar? And she's like, what? Like so taken aback. He's so serious. He seems really pissed. And he shows her the pictures of her sending the letters. And he tells her about the red bandana in her office. All this evidence they've found that points them to her. And they and all they need to know now, he says, is why. They want to know why. But here's the thing. She seems genuinely stunned. Like, she doesn't remember? Is she in denial? Yeah, I mean, Captain Hill is going over this evidence, and it's like, watching Ruth take it in, she seems as surprised as everybody else. And he's like, Ruth, like, you sent these letters. Why did you do it? Why did you lie about being kidnapped? Ruth, how did you stab yourself? And she's just, like, completely wide-eyed, and all she manages to say is, I don't know. I mean, logically, when she sees the evidence presented in front of her, she can comprehend what must have happened. You know, she's looking at this evidence and going, okay, yeah, I wrote the letters. Okay, I I took the bus to the park and then I left my clothes and ran to that liquor store that I stabbed myself in the side. And while she's like comprehending putting these pieces together, she cannot remember any of it. Yeah, these memories are not like flooding back to her and she's not like, yep, you got me or anything like that. It's like you're watching someone almost like waking from a dream and trying to recall that dream. And if you told them they dreamed of this thing, they would almost believe you. Like almost he could plant ideas in her head because she's just so confused. And he's telling her like, I'm not mad at you. I just want answers. And she's like not able to provide answers And he asks her, do you need help? Do you want to see a doctor? And she's like kind of quietly, sadly agreeing because she knows something is deeply wrong. And she tells Hill that she wishes that she was dead. And she says, I must be crazy. Ruth is sent to St. Joseph's Hospital and she is put on 24-hour psychiatric watch. Ed is by her side the entire time, but... But Ruth is an absolute mess. Ed promises that they're going to get through this together. Now, when everything is said and done, this poet case cost the Wichita police $370,000, more than 30,000 hours of police work. You know, even at the end here, you're hiring helicopters every day to follow them. I mean, it just couldn't have been cheap. And the reaction from the police is really mixed. Some people are really sympathetic to Ruth. I assume it's her friend Drewatsky, right, who know her and are probably just as confused as Ruth is. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But then you get people like Chief Lemunyan, who he really believes that Ruth is a criminal, that a calculated criminal. And he wants to charge her with something. So the investigation continues. Right. I mean, I think he especially probably took it pretty personally because of the direct his threats wife. to his wife. Um, so what happens is that Ruth starts to work with a therapist named Dr. Pickens. And like Ruth, he's really invested in finding out how could she have tormented herself and this community for four years and not known about it. So early on in their sessions together, Ruth is having a really hard time talking about her past, like like before, way, mm-hmm. way before. Um, and even when she does, she describes her childhood as totally normal and that her mom was perfect, which my therapist has always said, if you tell me your mom is perfect, something is wrong. <laughs> something is deeply wrong. So he's having a hard time, and and they kind of discover um, after some sessions that poetry might actually be a more effective outlet for her, um, and that some of the stuff she wrote as the poet might have been linked to stuff in her childhood. So she starts writing poetry about her past, about her childhood. And as she brings these poems in, because it is one of the only ways she can bring herself to talk about it, Dr. Pickens starts to realize that there was nothing perfect, nothing normal about this childhood. Because the poems that Ruth brings in are intense, really intense. And some of them are pages and pages in length. I'm just going to read you an excerpt just to give you an idea. I won't turn my head and look at the man. Please, for my daddy, I'll die if I can. No one can hear me. It's not all right. Under the pillow, it's dark as night. Something is happening. I'm sorry. I'm bad. Now I'm dead and I am glad. Yeah, a lot of these poems are really, really hard to read. Um, I imagine they were even harder for Ruth to read. But one thing is for sure, they definitely contain references to abuse. And one of the things Ruth recalls, one of the images that comes up for her when she tries to access memories of this abuse is a red bandana. It is just so clear to Dr. Pickens that she is repressing very traumatic memories. And according to the book Little Girl Fly Away by Jean Stone... Ruth tells Dr. Pickens that she has this habit of counting, like she counts everything. And he kind of sees that as a minor form of dissociation where, you know, your brain is starting to think about something and you're like, nope, we have this really important task. We have to count, trying to bring it to something else. Um, If she's dissociating today, he feels certain that she has used other forms of dissociation to escape the traumas in her past And these are traumas that she genuinely is struggling very hard to remember. This work is arduous and and it takes time. And at this point, it's it's taken them three months to finally uncover the meaning of her poems and that that image of the red bandana. Ruth grew up during Depression-era Kansas, and when she was three years old, she had an adult neighbor that took a special liking to her. And at this point, he began to groom Ruth. First, it started off as them playing games, like he 
played hide and seek with her. Um, And then from there, the encounters escalated. He began tying her to a bed with a red bandana. He started taking her to his barn to sexually abuse her. He would gag her with the red bandana to keep her quiet. He threatened to kill her if she told anyone what he'd done. She was a child. When Ruth would cry when this neighbor would come to her house or when they would go to this neighbor's house, she would just, like, burst into tears. And she would try to run away, and her parents looked at that as, like, a misbehavior when that would happen. Mm -hmm. So they would punish her for it, or they would tell her she was a crybaby. They would act really aggravated that she was behaving that way. And she took that on, you know. I think that she felt like whatever was going on, it had to somehow be wrapped up in through some fault of her own. The same year the assault was happening, she was given a book of children's poems, and she loved this book. It was read to her often. And then, you know, as the assaults were escalating, she started to fantasize that these poems were about her, and they were all about how bad she was. So it was like this 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 book was like a beacon of hope. And then through the assault, it became this, this thing that was scary. And so she hides the book and she never reads it again. And according to the book uh, that recounts all this therapy, Little Girl Fly Away, Ruth does end up recalling that during these assaults, what she would do to cope as this child is she'd break herself in two. And essentially, like a ghost Ruth would float out of her, float out of her body, and she called it floating off to heaven. And it made her feel like it wasn't actually happening to her, right? She's now watching this happen to this other little girl. And she's sort of escaping it, even if it's in her mind. But... Then when she'd go back into her body afterwards, she remembers being this little girl apologizing to the other little girl. Like, I'm so sorry I had to leave you, but I had to. Like, I had to leave you. And they would, like, comfort each other. And during these therapy sessions, oh, it's so sad. It's so, so sad. It really, like... I know. Sorry. No, you're okay. I think it's like, it's so, it's so big. It's so big to know that this, this little child was hurt so much that it, and like, she had no She help. had to break herself. I mean, so yeah. she becomes like these two people and that's like the start of her ability to dissociate. And even during these therapy sessions, when she remembers doing this, she doesn't say like, I did that. She, he's like, what do you see happening? And she'll be like, the little girl is getting hurt right. by this man. Like, she still calls the person that it happened to, not herself, not Ruth, but the little girl. Dr. Pickens tells her that this is called dissociation. According to the Mayo Clinic, a lot of victims of childhood trauma develop dissociative disorders. And in the most severe cases, it leads to the formation of a second consciousness in a survivor's mind. And while this second consciousness is not a fully formed person or identity, it is strong enough to act without the person's knowledge. So so this would justify why Ruth would have no idea of her actions um, and why 
why she had no clue that this was happening to her and that when she would dissociate, she wouldn't remember what she did. And it wasn't really her. It was this sort of alter ego that we'll call the poet. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because when she starts to be able to access these memories, there are all these weird similarities where, mm-hmm. like, she's running from him at one point and, like, hides in a chicken coop and is, like, listening for him to see right. if she got away. And it mirrors very much, like, when she thought she was running from her kidnappers and hid in a bush and was listening to them call her till they left. And you remember, like, there was all this, like, in the back seat, like concrete and rags and all this stuff that he kept throwing yeah. in the back seat. And there's one of her memories when she gets like put in this guy's pickup truck with him and he's got the same kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's not just the red bandana. There's sort of all this stuff that is crossover. And in fact, like one of the really creepy things that happens is that one time at her house, he pulls her aside and tells her if she's not going to keep quiet, he's going to put her in a sack and throw her over a bridge into a river. And later on in life, Ruth has some, like, suicidal thoughts, and she thinks she's going to, like, save her money and go to Oklahoma and maybe jump off a bridge. And she, like, thinks about that, and it feels like she has this, like, guilt where she's got to complete what this man was doing to her somehow. Like, she's got to be the one to keep hurting herself now that he's not hurting her, and she has to be the one to maybe kill herself. I think that she cannot help because this all happened to her when she was so young. She was three and a half years old. When she thinks about her abuse, she's still three and a half when she thinks about it. And I think she feels things and sees things through the eyes of a child when that's happening. And even though as an adult you could reason you weren't the bad person in this scenario, because she felt that way then, she still feels it now, and she thinks she should be punished. So after um, an extensive psychological review, I mean, we're talking about a a long time here. Yeah. A report on Ruth Finley is delivered to the police and the local prosecutor, and they decide they can't, in good conscience, charge Ruth with anything. The district attorney's office believes that her actions were not malicious. And without intent, too, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, too, because Chief Lemunyan, who was, you know, the person who thought that she was a calculating criminal, he ends up coming around, right? There's enough evidence to convince him that, you know, she's not worthy of a sentence, right? He actually tells the Wichita Eagle Beacon It's not a trick. This woman is not playing this thing. She absolutely believes it. It's real in her mind. But of course, in anything like this that's really hard to comprehend, there are still a lot of questions lingering around the case of Ruth Finley and the poet. And it's a lot of it, it's really hard to be explained. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think that what's interesting is we have Ruth, who's obviously like, even through years of therapy, not going to be the most reliable narrator. But there's a few things that she's like, I can't account for this. Because even though she can like draw up some foggy dreamlike memory of like writing the letters or and even stabbing herself, she's like, no, but I was with Ed when that wreath got lit on fire and the window broke. I don't know how I could have possibly been the one that did that. 
And Ed and Lieutenant Drewatsky, they did hear men's voices on the phone. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. someone was calling Ruth's house and it was a man's voice. Right. And like the the red bandana wrapped knife that got left in her office building. She's like, that was so closely monitored. I don't know how I could have done that without somebody seeing me. She also says the original phone call after Ed was hospitalized, how we started this whole story off, was real. She says that the newspaper clipping that she received in the mail, she did not send herself. And the man who harassed her on the street and told her some people's fantasies are other people's nightmares, those were all real incidents. She does not believe that she hallucinated any of these things or that she had anything to do with them. Uh, You know, which I guess does raise the question, like, how much of this was totally Ruth and how much of it was in her head? And was there someone externally from her that was trying to scare her? We don't know. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. Reporting by the Wichita Eagle Beacon, including an article entitled Poet's Victim Admits She's Poet by Fred Mann a book entitled Little Girl Fly Away by Jean Stone, and an article in Truly Adventurous entitled The Poet. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner, and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.